All right. Remember, if you're online, please participate either on YouTube or on Facebook. Anytime we got something like Whitway, and uh, it's good to have you all here today. Well, before we go any further today, I, I really felt the need to be here this morning. I'm still on vacation. Um, I really am. But I felt the need to be here uh, for a couple of reasons, three reasons, actually. One is I wanted to encourage some of the volunteers who meet for prayer in the morning. Um, and secondly, I really wanted to be here to hear Ajit Christopher preach today. And third, I wanted to share with you uh, some perspective that I have for you and our leadership here with regard to the Supreme Court ruling that overturned Roe v. Wade. So I want you to lend me your heart here for a moment, and I want to read some prepared comments if I could. The Supreme Court of the United States decision overturning Roe v. Wade has America on tilt. Our social and political divides are growing in intensity and becoming quite dangerous. The challenge disciples of Christ face are real. And in line with what Francis Schaeffer once wrote, how shall we then live? I have three responses that I'm encouraging our church and even tomorrow radio listeners to take and to act on them boldly. First, celebration. Never let the fear of man keep you from giving God praise in anything. Thousands of faithful women and men have been working in the trenches of Congress, and millions of prayers have been offered over the last four decades. It's time to celebrate what God has done to bring our collective conscience back to the table of debate, state by state, around the brutality and barbarism of taking a life, especially those with a beating heart and absolute viability outside the womb. Celebrate not in the face of people, but straight to the face of God. Second, vision. This Supreme Court of the United States decision carries a huge blessing for our nation. Open up and share it. To kill anyone made in the image of God is to attack God himself. But the reversal of what had gained national approval has been seen by God, and his promises are real. Psalm 106 lays out God's heart for basic humanity, the price tag for taking innocent lives, and the blessing from God when nations repent and return. The upside of national repentance is enormous. Pastor Tony Evans recently posted that, quote, this decision also positions us more fully to intercede on behalf of God's mercy on our nation in order to reverse the crime epidemic. The blessings of God can always be traced to righteous moves, even by reluctant people. Talk about it. Third, compassion. Many are fearful and suspicious and need to be heard and cared for with compassion and love. 
Although misguided or misinformed, some will see this reversal as threatening their lives and personal freedom. Yes, rabid proponents of choice say disgusting things beyond imagination, but those are the rare few. Most people need a fair shot at the message of hope in Christ, a vision for the future and help along the way. That's the gospel. And might I add here, if we aren't willing to put up a mother carrying her child to term and or assist with those needed things to lighten the short-term and long-term burden, we need to share less about our supposed convictions. And remember that many millions of people are being reawakened over bad choices in the past. Some folks you think you know but live in the shadows of shame and are being reminded of it again today. So much love is needed. Faith without works is dead, and God has made us alive in Christ. Let's go live it. Let me pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you that you are a good God. Lord, I've thought so many times, even just having been raised in the great state of Alaska and having the privilege of seeing so many little puppies born to dogs and just watching the wonder and miracles of life and then being able to see my own son and daughter brought into this world. God, some of this rancor is very evident the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. But Lord, let us be people who both cheer victories but offer mercy. Mm. That we would champion the rewards of a people who turns from any wicked ways and that we would first illustrate it from our own lives and that you'd be honored through it. Thank you for your love and grace. Help us to be that to others. In Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. Well, guys, we're going to shift gears right now. And uh, you know what we need to do around here a whole lot more, and I hope it happens with increasing fervor. So grateful for Cleo being part of our church. Oh, there she is today. <laughs> but I want you to put your hands together big time for the preacher this morning. And when you hear something that you go, that's right, maybe even yell it. Come on, put your hands together for a Jit Christopher, everybody. Come on. Well, good morning. Well, it's great to worship God with you and now uh, to have the opportunity to look at his word. And I have to say, I am really excited about today's passage um, for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, it's always, always a delight to get into God's word and see what the Bible says. But second, um, I've preached a couple of hundred sermons, uh, probably even more than that. And, and I said this last week as well. <laughs> But this, was a, this is a hard passage that we're going to be dealing with. <laughs> this is hard. And, and it's, it's, been, it's been a battle even for me because um, 
you know, as a preacher, my obligation, one, is to the Word of God, and two, to love the Word of God to first change me before I do anything with it. And this is a hard passage to apply, hard passage to live out, and I hope and pray that you would hear my heart and you would hear what the Spirit is telling us today and for us to collectively do our best in the power of the Spirit to be able to put this um, into practice. Frida Gashumba was a vibrant girl. She was a precocious child. She was deemed to be one of the most gifted children in her village in Rwanda. If you don't know, um, I had to actually look this up. Rwanda is a small country in Central Africa, about the size of the U.S. state of Maryland. And the Gashumba family were one of the wealthier families in this rural farming community. They owned a banana plantation, they were respected in the community, and they, Frida had a really happy childhood until she didn't, until things just fell apart. Her life was forever changed at the age of 14 when a civil war broke out in her country. This was in the year 1990. The clash was between two warring tribes, the Hutus and the Tutsis. The Hutus were the ruling class, while the Tutsis were the minority. And in the span of four years, the war eventually ended up becoming a genocide in the year 1994. And within 100 days, it's estimated that 800,000 Tutsis were systematically massacred by the ruling class. And Frida and her family were Tutsis. And she says in one of her interviews, people were brainwashed to believe Tutsis were less than human. We were made to feel like snakes and cockroaches, only meant to be exterminated. And on May 7, 1994, a band of Hutu men came to her village with the hopes of executing all the Tutsis in the, in the village. And Frida says, she says, we heard their songs before we saw them. It was a disgusting sight. They were vying with each other to see who was the fiercest killer. Neighbors turned on each other. Friends turned on each other. The Hutsus lined up Frida and her family, about 15 of them. And they were discussing what was the best way to massacre them. Was it with machetes? Was it with clubs, bullets, or even a grenade? And eventually they decided that these guys were not worth the price of a bullet, so a club would be used. So these villagers and Frida's family, they were told to crawl into a ditch, and then they clubbed each and every person to death. Frida was unconscious. They thought she was dead, so they left. About 14 hours later, she gained consciousness and she was pulled out of the ditch. She was alive, but she was filled with a tremendous loss, sense of loss and aloneness. She says, my father was dead, my mother was dead, my brothers, my sisters were dead. I felt I had nothing to live for. In the months that followed, Frida ended up becoming a Christian. It was a very painful, excruciating process of emotional and physical and mental healing. But she did let God 
enter into the process, and she did find healing. And one day she realized that she needed to forgive her enemies. She needed to forgive the people who massacred her family. So she requested an audience with one of her killers who was in prison, and she visited him, hoping to ask for forgiveness. And the moment she saw him, her entire past came flooding in. She, she couldn't take it. She just ran away. She said, God, I can't do this. Weeks later, she again mustered up the courage to be able to face the person who was responsible for the massacre of her family. And this time, she forgave him. She says, in my own natural strength, I could not forgive the people who massacred my family. I could not see the value of loving until Christ came into my life and enabled me to forgive others. It says, since then, peace has increased immeasurably in my life as I've forgiven those who have destroyed my family. You can read about it in her book. It's called Frida, Chosen to Die, Destined to Live. This is not a normal kind of love. It's easy to love those who love us. It's easy to be friends with those who want to be friends with us. It's easy to do good to those who do good to us. But forgiving someone who massacred your family, it's, it's radical love. It's unconventional love, and that's the title of my sermon today, Unconventional Love. And we're going to look at a passage that talks about that this morning. We're currently in week nine of our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount called Echo, where Jesus' message on the mountainside is clear and powerful today as then. And in this sermon, Matthew projects Matthew, the gospel writer, projects Jesus as the king of the Jews, the long-awaited Messiah. And Jesus now goes up to the mountain, just like Moses did in the Old Testament, and he gives the law. And he talks about what life looks like in this new kingdom that Jesus is establishing. Jesus portrays the nature of life in this kingdom, and he also talks about the impact and the identity of those who embrace this new kingdom and one of the ways he shows that, he talks about the life in the kingdom, is that he quotes six statements from the Old Testament, six verses from the Old Testament, all of those which have been religiously followed by the children of Israel, the Jews, and Jesus expands them. He qualifies them and teaches them what it means for his disciples. And we've, we've already looked at, you know, five of them. Last week we looked at the passage where Jesus says, you have heard it said... An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person. Then he goes on to give four examples of what that meant in their context. Um, and, 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 and the thrust of that passage being, Jesus does not want us to retaliate, or he wants us to give up the right to get even, but to go above and beyond and do good to those who have been wronged. If that wasn't hard enough, we're going to look at today's passage, and here God is going to show a kind of active love that goes beyond that, where we actively show love to those who are certifiably our enemies. Would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48? It's going to be up on your screen. Let me read that for you. 
It says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So this passage here begins with Jesus quoting an Old Testament scripture, you shall love the la your neighbor and hate your enemy. This quotation is taken from Luke, from Leviticus 19.18. And this is one of the most central truths of, truths of the Old Testament. In fact, even Jesus in, 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 uh, in Matthew 22, when a lawyer comes up to him and asks, what is the greatest commandment? He says, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then he says, you should love your neighbor as yourself. So this is a fundamental truth of the Old Testament, but two interesting observations about how Jesus uses this passage. One, he omits the word as yourself. So he doesn't say love your neighbor. So when he's quoting the Old Testament, he doesn't say love the, your neighbor as yourself. He just says love your neighbor. And then there's an addition of a phrase, hate your enemy. And what's interesting is there's no scripture in the Old Testament that explicitly says, hate your enemy. So what is Jesus doing here? Jesus seems to be stating the most common interpretations of this passage by the teachers of his day. This is what they believe. So you, you look at the passage in the book of Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself, the way it's interpreted, love your neighbor. Now there's a big difference with that. If you say love your neighbor as yourself, that's a different kind of love as opposed to saying, mm, love your neighbor. The standard has already been degreased. And then the Old Testament in general has a complex relationship of, between Israel and its enemies. Definitely there are scriptures that, that are stern in regards to how Israel is called to deal with their enemies. But at the same time, there are verses that talks about love and compassion that needs to be shown uh, to their enemies. Let me read Proverbs 25, 21 to 22. I just want to present it to you as an exhibit. A, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he's thirsty, give him water to drink. So there's a complex relationship in terms of how you deal with your enemy in the Old Testament. But never does it say, hate your enemy. But obviously, that's the most convenient thing for us to do. And hence, that was what was taught by these scribes and the Pharisees. A side note, this is something that's not just restricted to teachers of Jesus' day. I think this is something that we have a tendency to do as well. Sometimes, because we want a God who is palatable to us, because we want to create a God from our who feeds our own whims and fancies, we can create. We can interpret scripture to mean what it means to us. And that's something that all of us, including me, 
we have to be really careful about, you know, in, in biblical interpretation, you have what do you call as exegesis, where you let the text, let the Bible speak for yourself, and the opposite of it is eisegesis, where you put stuff in to make it say what you want it to say. And that's a very real and present danger for us. Are we building a God? Do we have a conception of, our, of a God who comports with our sensibilities to what we think he is? Or are we letting God show himself through his word for what he is? So here... The Jewish leaders, the teachers say, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You can imagine the shock for these, the listeners of the Sermon on the Mount. They had real enemies. Now, the Jews were under oppression. They were under Roman oppression, so they were persecuted. Uh, the Romans mistreated the Jews. It culminated in AD 66 with a Jewish rebellion that ended up with the temple being destroyed and forever changing the face of Judaism. So there was a lot of tension. So they had tangible enemies that they had. I was trying to think of a parallel, like who would be a national enemy that I can think of? And it was really obvious for, for me, you know, with being an Indian, uh, our foremost enemy, enemy is Pakistan. So they've been, we were all brothers. We were all one country until 1947 when the British left India. They divided India into India and Pakistan. All the Hindus were supposed to be in India. The Pakistanis, all the Muslims were supposed to be in Pakistan. So there was a lot of crossover. There were riots. Uh, about one million people were killed. It's reported that trains with dead bodies were sent, you know, from, from the Indian side to the uh, Pakistani side and vice versa because of so much communal tension. And, and this, right, and we've, we've fought about three wars with them, the last being in 1999. I was actually, you know, I still remember just watching those images on TV. And we had uh, an oil refinery by our house, so we were actually living in fear if that was going to be bombed, because if it was, it was the end of us. This was a real enemy for us as Indians, and we have been socialized to hate the Pakistanis. And this is played out in an interesting fashion when we play cricket. It is crazy. When India and Pakistan plays, all the president of the country, both countries are there. They're all in like, you know, rival boxes watching the match. There's like a billion viewers watching, and the team that loses, we got to pray for them. There's literally, there's literally people on the streets breaking their TVs, just rioting because they don't want to lose to their enemy. And I had an interesting encounter. Like, being in India, I had never met a Pakistani. It's really hard to get into Pakistan and vice versa. So when I came to Moody, there was one guy that looked like an Indian, and I was new. It was like three weeks in. I go up to him. I was like, are you an Indian? And he goes, no, I'm a Pakistani. <laughs> and I didn't know what to say. I'm like, what do I do? You know, he's supposed to be my, you know. But we ended up becoming good friends. And, and there's just some amazing things happening in Little India. If you go down there, it's the South Asian community where Indians are ministering to Pakistanis and vice versa. Just seeing how the love of God can just completely take over and dismantle such enmity and rivalry. 
and here. Amen. We, we got to shout to that. And here, Jesus' audience, they have a tangible enemy right in front of them, the Romans. And Jesus says, you got to love them. You got to love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. And you could say that these Jews had spiritual enemies as well. The Jews, obviously, the oracles of God were committed to them, so they felt that they were superior, so it was unlawful for them to associate with a non-Jew, with a non-Gentile. So they had spiritual enemies as well. So they were justified in hating their enemy because they felt that they were righteous in hating evil. And Jesus says, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. And here is the crux, the big idea of my sermon today. Jesus is calling us to an unconventional kind of love that actively pursues the good of those who mistreat us and even seeks God on their behalf. An unconventional kind of love that actively pursues the good of those who mistreat us and seeks God on their behalf. And that's a very hard thing. I was trying to like drop a continuum of like, how do you treat your enemies? On, on the one end, you have revenge and retaliation. You want to get it back. And that's, that's a normal response. And a lot of people do that. And then you have, you know, be angry and you kind of hold a grudge forever. I have a family member who... Uh, fought with another family member. They live in the same house, but they have not talked for more than like 30 years. They're not Christians, um, you know, so maybe there's an out there for them. But, and then you have forgive, but you don't forget. You want to hold it against them. And then maybe forgive and forget. And then somewhere in between you have indifference, apathy, where we're just so numb to it that we just don't, you know, we just don't, take time to process that hurt, and we just don't handle it. But then Jesus goes past all of this. Last week, he said, turn the other cheek, walk an extra mile to those who have wronged you. And then he doesn't stop there. Today, this week, in this passage, he goes, love your enemy. Have a posture and an attitude where you actively pursue the good of the other person. And here... We're going to look today, we're going to look at two reasons why God wants us to do that. Why should disciples imitate God's unconventional love? Let me read verse 45 to you. It says, So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. This is the purpose statement of this passage. The why behind it at all. The rationale for loving people who mistreat us is because of our relationship with our Father. So that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. Just a word of clarification. This is not the means or the way in which we become his son. That's not what the passage is saying. The passage is not saying, hey, only if you love your enemy... That's when you become God's child. That's not what the passage is saying. We know that's not the totality of scriptural revelation. Salvation is by grace through faith alone. It's because of what Jesus has done that we have been adopted into his family as sons and daughters. But God says, Jesus says, because you are my son, you will evidence 
this love, a love for one's enemy. It is our outworking of our kingdom identity. We are motivated to love others with God's radical love because we are his children. It's those good works that overflow from our relationship with God. And we see a parallel example in Ephesians 5, verse 1 and 2, where Paul says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. So we imitate God as his sons in loving our enemy. And then, and then Jesus goes on to, you know, give an example. He says, God makes the sun rise on both the evil and the righteous, rain on the just and the unjust. He doesn't discriminate. Theologians call this concept common grace. It's the grace of God by which he bestows his blessings for all. Well, our family and I, we just went on a road trip. Uh, we drove to Seattle one way a couple of weeks ago, and then we flew back. It was just amazing to see just the topography, the landscape as we drove through, you know, by Wisconsin and, and Minneapolis. We had never been to North Dakota, so we were so excited to see the canyons of the Badlands, and then into Montana, just the prairies, the mountains, and then you go into northern Idaho. There's lakes and rivers and just sceneries. It's just beautiful. God has bestowed this on all. Everyone gets to enjoy that, whether you're a believer or not. And common grace is often distinguished with saving grace, which is God's grace that saves us. And Jesus says, because of who, I, who God is, a good father who bestows his common grace on all, he wants you to imitate that as well. This passage hits differently for me at the stage of life that I'm in as well. Uh, we have a 20-month-old daughter, and Roshni just follows us around everywhere we go right now. So she wants to be where, where we are, and now she started to imitate us as well. So we've had to be careful on what we're saying, what we're watching. There was one time she was eating, and Katie and I, we were talking, and, and I just said, that's so annoying. And she goes, that's so annoying. <laughs> and now it's part of her vocabulary. I'm like, how do I get this out, you know? And you see her, like, completely, you know that she's so enthralled and just completely adores us as parents as much as, as, much as we do, and she wants to imitate us. She knows that, you know, when daddy watches TV, daddy watches three things, cricket, basketball, Formula One. So she'll come up to me and be like, cricket, cricket. She wants to watch 10 seconds of cricket with me. So I'll have to put that uh, for her. And then the other day, I, I come to uh, my living room and she, she's counting. She's like on the floor doing leg lifts. She's going one, two, three. I'm like, what are you doing? She's like, exercise because she watches mommy do that. It's, it's, it's just a great season of, and, and now, the other funny thing was, um, we have a Google Home, so you know we always play music for her, and we go, hey Google, can you play this? And now she wants to do that, she goes straight up, goes, hey Doodle, can you play, you know, old McDonald? But everything that we do, she wants to do. She's enthralled by her parents, and she wants to imitate. 
And as God's children, God wants us to be enthralled by His grace that we imitate His unconventional, His radical love. Why should disciples imitate God's unconventional love? My first point is we will be children who resemble our Heavenly Father. We will truly be like our Heavenly Father. And then he goes on and gives another reason. In verse 46, he says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? It's just fascinating what Jesus is doing with this passage. He's actually playing on the ego and the pride of his Jewish hearers. The two people that the Jews despised the most were the tax collectors and the Gentiles. Why tax collectors? Because they were fellow Jews, but they kind of had their allegiance to the Roman authorities. So they were tasked with getting taxes for the Romans. And so they were traitors to the Jewish cause. And secondly, these guys tried to pad their pocket. So the Jews hated them. And Jesus says, well, if you love those who love you, you're not any different from those tax collectors whom you despise. And then these Gentiles, we, you know, we talked about it briefly. The Jews did not want to associate with the Gentiles. And Jesus says, well, they do that as well. They greet their own brethren. If you just do that, what difference is there between you and the Gentiles. So why should disciples imitate God's unconventional love? Because we don't need a transformed life to do good to those who like us. There is nothing special about treating people who treat you well. One of the things... Katie and I, we talk about and um, in regard to gift giving, and I kind of saw that firsthand with my dad. My dad's a pastor, and he always told me, well, we had, we had a mini revival in the early 2000s. We had a bunch of young adults, a lot of them, you know, who have been ostracized from the society because they were Hindus, and now they're Christians, so the family kind of like disowned them. It was a matter of honor, so they were part of our church, and my dad always used to say, you know, it's really easy for me to give you a gift as my son. But I always want to check my heart to see if I do the same thing, if I give the same advice to a young man who's at the similar stage of life as you are. Am I giving the same counsel? Am I giving the same advice to that person? And we, and I thought that was, that was really amazing because we give good gifts to our family. We give good gifts to, you know, those we love. But here Jesus takes it a step further. Love your enemy. We should treat enemies with the same kind of kindness that we do our friends. And this is what God, Jesus says in this passage. And finally, he ends it in verse 48, and he says, Be perfect. You, therefore, must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. There's a lot of debate on what this word perfect means, and it's misunderstood to mean sinless perf 
perfection which is impossible to attain here, but we will be perfect when Jesus comes back and when we're glorified. But being perfect, this is a great conclusion, not just to this passage, but to the six statements that Jesus is talking about. He talks about righteousness exceeding that of the Pharisees, and he gives these six statements. And he says, well, if you do this, you're going to be mature. You're going to be complete. You're going to bring, you're going to fulfill the goal. And here in this passage, being perfect in its immediate context refers to imitating the unconventional love of the Father, the perfect love of the Father who lavishes on all kinds of people regardless of their merit. And as a conclusion for all of these things, principles, it entails a call to embody God's greater standards of righteousness in all ways as of imitating God himself. The word perfect means mature, complete, to bring to a completion. And what Jesus is doing here, the context of this Sermon on the Mount, he's raising the bar so high. This is not something that we can do on our own. But this gives us hope because as his new kingdom disciples, God wants us to, wants to empower us to be able to live out this ideal. Even as I end today, I have a couple of observations on what this passage, on how I've been wrestling with this passage. Firstly, as I was reading this passage, I was kind of thinking about my own life. I became a Christian when I was seven years old, so it's been more than 20 years. So I've always kind of identified as being part of the in-group, you know? God loves me, God's with me, God does this thing for me. And this passage made me think of my life before God. The Bible says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were sons of disobedience. We were enemies of God. But while we were still sinners, God loved us so much that he gave his son for us. And it, it kind of hit me differently. I'm like, I was an enemy to God. And God loved me. And he has brought me into his family. He's extended his love to me. How much more should that be a motivation for me to love those who have wronged me? And secondly, I believe, and as Pastor Carl mentioned today, we are, we are heading into a difficult season. And I do have to say as a disclaimer, this is not something new for me or for Vivek or for, you know, people from other countries. We've been, we've been you know, as believers, we've been a minority for, for as long as we can remember. In India, we have 1.2 billion people, out of which less than 2% is Christians. And that's one of, that's me. So we've been persecuted. We've been, you know, our, our backs have been against the wall. And it's getting here, which is how I think it's meant to be because when it's darkest, the light shines the brightest. And that's when we can influence our society. And just, just, you know, dream with me as Christ's followers, as Christ's disciples. If we were to put his teachings in the Sermon on the Mount into practice, the difference that we can make in this world, the impact is just, it's just... It's hard to fathom what God can do. 
when we do that. And, and that's what I want for us as a church, as a family, as individuals, to be able to, to put this into practice. And even as I end today, I have a couple of questions for you. What does this unconventional love look like in our life, in your life? In what ways can you resemble your Heavenly Father by showing a radical love that seeks to actively love even your enemies? Let's pray. God, we just, we thank you for your word. We just thank you for who you are. You have been so good to us, God. You've been so good to us. And God, this passage is difficult. Applying it is difficult, but we want to just give ourselves to you. We belong to you, Jesus. We want to surrender our lives to you. And we don't know how to do it. We don't know how to apply. We don't know in what context to apply. But I just pray that you would lead us. I pray that your spirit would lead us, God. We want to be your new kingdom disciples. We want to make an impact in our world today. We want to be your hands and feet, God. And we just pray that you would help us to love our enemy and pray for those who even persecute us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.